Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter, the podcast which takes a good look at why mothers matter so much to their children, why mothers matter in society and what matters to mothers themselves. This podcast is the first international one for Mothers Matter. I had the pleasure of speaking to Carolina Allen in the USA through the wonders of Zoom and a very early start for her. Carolina founded Big Ocean Women, um, which is a group whose mission is to gather and train women to be deliberate thinkers and to engage as powerful forces for good in their homes, communities and world. Um, It's really encouraging to speak to other mothers around the world who are wrestling with the same issues that we are in the UK, um, particularly as we often seem to follow what the uh, US does in terms of our um, cultural development. So uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for getting up so early. It's 5am there, isn't it, Where we when we're recording? Yes, oh, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm so delighted to talk to you because you have popped into my social media as Big Ocean, Big Ocean Women, and I'm just fascinating to, fascinated to find out more about it. What is Big Ocean Women and uh, why did you set it up? Yeah, well, I think it was just birthed out of a lot, many, many years of feeling philosophically displaced, um, where I just felt internally powerful, but that there was no kind of visual place for me to represent my perspective because they were all, um, kind of viewed by the outside world as things that shouldn't make me feel empowered. And, um, and so it was actually the name big ocean is kind of unique. And, um, it came from an experience that I had just kind of um, throwing my hands in the air in frustration for having these questions for so many years and then feeling like, you know, a burst of inspiration um, that came to me when I was at the Oceanside one day. Um, It was after my sister-in-law's funeral. Um, So I had a lot of, you know, time to reflect about um, these questions of empowerment. What's the upshot of feminism? Why isn't there any place for me there? Um, and and then I just had this really magical experience at the ocean side where um, I felt like a small, insignificant little wave doing my thing, you know, within the walls of my home every day. And that um, I needed to stop identifying myself as just one wave, but rather um, the big ocean of women out there that are carers, that are nurturers, that, that are doing these magnificently powerful things. Um, and if I start identifying myself with the many women of the world that, um, that has the power within it to really create sustainable changes, you know, into the generations. And so that's where the name came from. So it came from a place of yearning and then it came from a place of realization. And then, um, from that I said, okay, well, you know, we can organize, we can gather more like-minded women and mothers, women who are empowered by these nurturing capacities and we can do something so brilliant and how did you go about um finding people to join you well um I wanted to see what was happening at the international level so after I had this experience it was in 2012 I said okay I'm going to go home and do something about it and I started researching and I wanted to hear what was happening in this arena at the international level because I I looked and I you know I 
didn't quite find that place. And I'm like, well, if it's going to be happening anywhere, it's going to be happening at the Commission on the Status of Women, which is kind of like this, you know, feminist Mecca meeting. Um, and when I got there, I, I went in 2014 and I didn't, it was like crickets. I didn't hear anything um, happening. And when I started having discussions with other women, they were like, oh my gosh, you know, you're someone from the United States that believes these things. I can't believe it. Where have you been all these years? And so there was a huge need for this voice um, in this space. Um, and the UN is an interesting place because you have, right, like the halls of power. You have a lot of um, incredibly powerful decision makers. Um, and then there's like a huge gap between the actual boots on the ground, nonprofits and NGOs and women that are leading movements and things. So that there's like this weird, it's like two worlds. And so when I talk to real everyday women, especially from the developing countries, they were amazed at this kind of feminism that I was talking to them about. Um, and then you kind of go to the more developed countries and, you know, it, that's what it, it's the root cause of all, you know, ills that are keeping women down. So um, I did find, you know, a real tribe, you know, when I went there and talked to some women um, and then I, I was able to come home and share these experiences and then, tell women that, oh my gosh, we're needed there. Let's rally together. Let's go. And so the very next year in 2015, we took a delegation of 25 um, that were kind of the original group that pulled together and we paid our own way. We had our husbands babysit. We, we did what we could and, and we went there and we got to hear some of the discussions and more like the non-discussions that were happening around women's issues that did not include mothers and so that's that, you know, it gave us that catalyst, that push to, to really formally organize. And were you able to um, have a say that first year when you went? Were you allowed to say anything or were you just listening and gathering information? We were listening and gathering and um, you can ask questions. We definitely made our voices heard um, as we asked questions. And um, but it was more just really trying to listen, trying to understand and get our bearings. And, um, yeah. And so it's been, I feel like every time we go, we're learning. Um, and you know, it's not like a democracy where you can go and it, it, the, the UN kind of runs differently. Um, but I do feel like it's an important space to be a part of and to be aware of because a lot of the, um, you know, international policies do trickle down and affect countries. And so I feel like that's kind of a root source to go to because you're getting, you know, the current, the most current trends. So what, uh, um, and then you're able the, to learn language. Mm -hmm. um, what's the message that you're hoping to get across? You are mentioning feminism before or a certain type of feminism. What, uh, what do you think is, um, what are you trying to say and what are you up against? Yeah, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to bring maternal feminism to the forefront, or at least to open some kind of a discussion um, that when you're talking about women's issues, mother issues are at the heart of all of this. Um, and if we're talking about sustainable change, um, you can't talk about sustainable change without talking about mothers. Um, that we're kind of the heart at the heart of all society, all societies perpetuate because of mothers. And so it's, 
is an incredibly important topic to talk about, but it's kind of scoffed at. It's kind of um, just kind of like brushed aside as something that's just so backwards. Um, and also I've realized when you talk about biology there, you know, our biological makeup um, and our capacity to nurture, to give life, to nurture life is really, you know, um, frowned upon. So, so what do you, what um, messages do you think the UN is mainly interested in when they're talking about women? What is it that they are trying to achieve? What, what are they, what outcomes are they looking for? Um, they're, they're looking to, um, for, for human capital and um, they're looking for workers to go and, you know, increase the gross national product of nations and the quicker they can get them out of the house um, to kind of shape them the way that they want, I think the better. And so they, we, um, they, they talk about recognizing unpaid care work and then redistributing unpaid care work um, to reduce and redistribute. So recognize, reduce and redistribute is the motto. So it's um, this idea of, you know, getting women out into the workforce to be workers, um, workers, uh, as if we don't work, you know, um, and then, and then likewise with children. And so I think that there's very much this, that that's the agenda. So. It's it, it's very similar to how the uh, UK government sees uh, women that um, mothers are just um, inactive economic units is how yes. we find yeah inactive economic unit um, if we're not working and uh, we're only of value if we're paying someone else to look after our children because we're doing another job. Uh, but what's really interesting, you mentioned the developing countries before. Uh, we have a, uh, seem to have a sort of two situations in the world. We have the developed countries like. Um, the US and the UK, Australia, Europe, most Europe, where mothers have been able to work for years and years and years, and now they're not allowed not to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have to be uh, doing the equal role to men, then, and mm -hmm. being at home is not seen as, as valuable. But then you do still have parts of the world where mothers are not getting to the point where they're allowed to work, and they're mm -hmm. only allowed to be mothers. So I think, I, I don't know how far... Um, the UN is focusing partly on them, like some of the Arab world where mothers are not allowed to work. Like if someone said to me, mm -hmm. uh, you're not allowed to work, you have to stay at home, then I'd get very cross about that. <laughs> I, yeah. I, it's my choice to stay at home or to do work from home or whatever. Um, so how do you see uh, that? Do you, do you feel your message is really talking about the developed world and the enough people are worrying about the developing world that they don't need a message or, or what do you I think, think? I think that the message we're trying to share is kind of getting at the root cause. And it's, it's saying, look, um, it, it's saying something profound about women that because of our biological capacity to create life, um, that's tremendously powerful. However you decide even whether to have children or not, um, just to, stay home and raise them or not to work or not, whatever it is that you decide. Um, I think that if we're going to elevate the status of women, we need to begin by elevating the status of mother, that women is intrinsically connected to this idea of other. And I think that when we can understand that, something really transformational happens. And that is that the dignity of women um, in all of our leadership and all of our capacity and all of our um, power that we're able to kind of take on 
this this presence and this role that the world, I think, has largely ignored for throughout history, you know, um, in the various myriad of ways that women have been oppressed. We have a two-pronged approach. Um, our leadership tends to attend and just kind of try to keep a pulse on language and what's happening um, in these international spaces. But at the heart of what we do is really try to inform everyday women, everyday mothers at home. Um, and we gather together in what we call cottages, which are these local groups, these chapters. And so they get to discuss our philosophy. They discuss the issues that are happening around them and how they can make a difference. And so we take very much a, um, a proactive approach to exercising our empowerment. Um, we do it within our homes. We do it within our communities. And we found that um, that's how women kind of fuel ourselves. Um, is having these, you know, face-to-face -face conversations with each other in these, you know, um, safe spaces. And then we can decide how we want to work together to make a difference in our communities. And that's really empowering. And um, can you tell me more about the cottages and, and what's involved with those? Yeah, so um, it's our, you know, it's our grassroots effort of everyday women and mothers um, that come together to discuss our tenets and our philosophy. And that's tremendously um, empowering and it strengthens us and um, it binds us in these really lasting friendships. And we're able to, you know, care for one another through these cottages and find, you know, sisterhood and then also come together and extend that sisterhood into our communities. So um, various cottages are active doing things, each very unique, you know, and doing things that they feel passionate about. So we have one in Houston, Texas that um, has found that, you know, um, youth and technology is a really big issue and they wanted to educate themselves. So they did. And then they decided to extend that to the community. So they petitioned local high schools to show um, this really big documentary about teens and tech. And so they were able to educate many, many parents about that and how to kind of regain this um, parent-child attachment, you know, that's so vital. And, you know, any, any cottage, any one of our cottages are doing different things. Some doing things about um, female menstrual hygiene in developing countries with other organizations and then um, child trafficking um, and all kind of, simultaneously learning this language of maternal feminism. So, so. Have, they, have they all got um, a sort of come together and then encourage each, other, encourage each other, then go out and do something sort of? Yeah, they work on projects together. They come together, they, they strengthen each other. Um, it's like a once a month meeting. And so the cottage leader will organize the women in her cottage and they will discuss a tenant once a month. And then um, sometimes you know, um, we ask them to ask critical questions about their community. What can you do? What's, what's some project that you can collaborate and work on together? And so they come up with them themselves and then they, you know, collaborate together and, and expand that sphere of influence. What was the reasoning behind the having a project to work on together? Do you think it through or is it something that just developed when you'd, you'd set them up? It, it kind of, it developed. It developed because women were wanting to, um, have that voice and, and also feel that sisterhood. And we found that, um, 
it, it was kind of both intentional and, and it just kind of took a life on its own in the projects that were happening. Um, we found that, you know, there's a lot of unity and collaboration and investment when women are coming together and not just talking, but doing. And I think that that goes hand in hand with motherhood, you know, where, um, we're constantly multitasking and it just kind of feels right to, you know, be chatting with a friend and cooking and folding and, you know, doing whatever. Um, there are some cottages that are just, you know, taking, um, their time to learn the tenants and just to, you know, meet each other and get to know each other. But we found that in time, people want to share what they are learning and, and it's just a natural outcome to want to look to the community. And I feel like that is helping the movement grow. So, yeah. And you mentioned, it's also helping. You mentioned the tenants a few times. Um, I've seen on your website, you've got 12 of them. Um, How did you, can you give us an example of one or two and how did you come up with them? Um, So, um, let me see. One is one that I love is that we work in interdependent relationships with men and that we honor fatherhood. And I think that that's really missing from a lot of the discussion today. I think that there's such a focus on women, 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 but, you know, we share this planet with, you know, half men. And if we're going to be creating solutions for women, we need to include men into the discussion and I can't simultaneously, you know, I, I, I can't hold, you know, motherhood up without likewise holding fatherhood up. And I, I've seen, um, just the beauty of, of having a present and engaged father, um, in my own father and in my husband and, um, my brothers. And so it's a beautiful thing that I, I think, um, only enhance, you know, our human family. And, um, And another one that I like is, um, it's, you know, there are lots that I love, but that every human being is unique, um, and worthy of respect. And I feel like that's really shaped, um, the culture of big ocean, um, where we have so many divisive issues, uh, happening around the world. And there's a lot of vitriol and how people are communicating. And so Big Ocean Women, we like to look at each individual as being completely unique and everyone is being worthy of respect. And so that's kind of at the heart of our culture that we've built around. So, And how did you um, choose those tenets and narrow them down and decide what you're going to have? Was there a group of you who got together? Um, it was mostly me um, thinking about what the ideal, you know, philosophical home would have like what what's the very basic kind of um I don't know plumbing in this philosophical home or something or or like just very stable um things that kind of anchor like the foundation and I I came up with those and then a few kind of developed over time um so there were eight originally and then four kind of developed out of our culture um that we wanted to create so Mm. You obviously do a lot of thinking about things. What what did you do BC before children? Um, I I played a lot of soccer. Um, <laughs> I love that sport, and I think it did a lot for me psychologically. How to be very resilient, um, and how to do hard things, and um, and then I did philosophy at the at the university level. So. 
Ah, there you go. That's that's where you're thinking. You're deep thinking <laughs> coming from. Yes. And what is it? Um, so you've got the cottages where people encourage each other. Is that is that quite difficult? Because estates is such a big place. Um, are they just little little places where people happen to be together, or do people travel a long way to get to them? How do they work? Well, we have online. We have what we call a virtual cottage. So anyone that doesn't have a cottage in their local area can join the virtual cottage once a month. Um, and then we have like the brick and mortar, like actual locations. And we found that if women really want to join one, we have all of the infrastructure as an organization that can, um, set them up to start their own, you know, if there aren't any other women. And then we can, we map out where people are so that if there are a few, um, in a certain location, we can get them in touch and whatnot. So, okay. okay. So we have a lot of the yeah, the, the materials and the training of how to kind of get these started. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you got any um, specific ideas of what you'd like to achieve in terms of changes at a, well, an international level in the UN or changes in the in the US or wherever your cottages are? Have you got ideas of what would be best for you or when you're starting to achieve what you're aiming for? I think I think from like a core organizational standpoint, I think each cottage has their own goals of what they want to accomplish, which I think is great because I, I think that um, allowing women to decide for themselves um, what kind of changes and influence they want to have is really, um, you know, at the heart of what I, I want to see happen. Um, and I think what, what happens by, by having that kind of emerge is the idea of of the power and strength of this collaborative, really broad maternal feminism. I think that as we're kind of each uniquely acting and having these common threads that what we're, we're sending a broader message to the world and we're, we're, we're sharing the idea and the belief that, um, that to be a woman and to be a mother is an incredibly powerful thing. And that nations are better off listening to what women have to say and that that is inherently leadership. Um, And economies are better off and society is better off. It's more resilient. It's more sustainable. It's more um, inclusive. And all of these things naturally occur when, um, when we have this kind of idea kind of flourishing um, and that women will have the support system Um, I talk a lot about this. I feel really passionate about it, but these natural support systems that occur um, when women and mothers collaborate together, it's just, it happens organically. The, the, um, the difficult thing that we, we face as mothers is is that often as mothers, your um, primary location is in the home and for the UN and for people to hear what mothers have to say, you have to go out of the home and Mm -hmm. someone else looking after the children. I think that's one reason why, mothers and particularly mothers who are at home full time don't often don't have a voice is because they've chosen to prioritize spending time with the children and the people who do have the voice are the people who are outside the home already or are paid members of the UN or Mm -hmm. or whatever so it is um really difficult to uh I mean it's easier now with social media but Mm -hmm. I mean what do you think about that um uh the the uh, challenge of being a mother and wanting to give your time to your children, but also wanting to make a difference. I think that that's exactly, yeah, that, that is a a really big, um, a really big issue. I think that 
you, you definitely can do it if you have a support network. And I think that that's how we do it as Big Ocean is um, we work together in these multi-waves that ebb and flow. Um, we have some of our leadership that have to take a break. You know, they're on maternity leave in the sense of when they're pregnant, um, they're like, I'm taking a break and we fill in and it's no big deal. And then you can bounce back in when you're ready. Um, and that's just how we work. We do things um, together kind of as a group. And so then the children are cared for and we can simultaneously have a voice. Um, and, you know, that's all possible because of this, you know, um, what we call a maternal economy, um, that we have our own economy that happens that allows us to do these many things. Um, I have, you know, days when my good friend, um, fellow leader, Ann Takasaki, who's incredible, um, she'll pop over and bring us dinner, you know, and say, Hey, I know you're busy. I know you're working on this project. Here's a meal for your family. Um, let me take your kids for a minute. Or, you know, if there's some kind of a big, um, project that we're working on, one of, one of our women will just watch kids and have fun with them and, you know, do fun activities while everyone's crowded around the kitchen table on their laptops, getting things done, sending emails, doing whatever. So there's a lot of power in numbers. And I feel like one of the biggest losses we are facing as, as mothers is the isolation of feeling like you're totally closed into your home without having a sisterhood, um, you know, and other little kids and other women just to talk and to plan and collaborate and to do um, I think that that's a tremendous tragedy. <clears throat> I, I've read several things that have come, I think, out of the UK where women um, are feeling this tremendous sense of isolation. And um, I think a lot of the mental and psychological, um, you know, health challenges that have come from that with feeling alone. Um, so, yeah, this fabric of of this network is, has kind of disintegrated when, when women aren't um, acknowledged for their care work at all. You know, when mothers aren't in the discussion, then kind of, yeah, has those challenges. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that um, loss of community. And it used to be a sort of mother that you'd have other mothers around, you'd have your own mother, you'd have, mm -hmm. you know, there was a big, um, society around you and and you're not supposed to be a mother on your own that you I think as soon as you have a baby you want to talk to other mothers and absolutely and find out what they're going through and and that's one of the big issues here is because everyone uh, so many people go back to work so early there's there are not so many toddler groups there's not so many community groups that you can go out to and so people feel like they are on their own so they then think, oh, my baby needs to meet other babies, which they don't really. But anyway, they, and so I need to put them in a toddler group or I need to put them somewhere where I'm not because I'm at work so that they socialize because they're not naturally meeting people because no one's at home because everyone's yeah. at home. It's a, it's a really negative spiral of um, stress on the, on the mother who's trying to mother alone. And then stress on the child who needs that attachment, you know, and who wants the mother and um, mothering is a tremendously difficult thing to do. It takes all of you, all of your heart, all of your, you know, mental capacity, all of your emotional capacity. And if you don't have a community, it's next to impossible. Um, and so I, I completely agree. I feel like at the heart of this movement is, is the revitalization of community. 
uh, and to have children running the streets again, just playing and, and not having things so structured, like, you know, let's have this play date and let's have this play group, but just letting children be children and having mothers organically care for one another um, is just such a beautiful thing. It fills your soul, you know, and it's something that feels so right about the world. Um, and so I think that's one of the things Big Ocean is really keen on doing is bringing that back, bringing that village back. Well, we're looking at, um, uh, well, there's an app called Mummy Links that uh, I did a previous podcast on, where, which is for generally mothers with young children that they can the message on the app saying, I fancy going out this afternoon, is anyone nearby and wants to go to the park, so that you've got someone to connect to and someone will say, yeah, I'll be there at three o'clock. So it's all, it's sort of recreating informality through a mm-hmm. formal <laughs> formal means, because otherwise you do have to plan, you know, three days ahead, who's going to be free to meet up and who's going to do what when. Um, mm-hmm. So we lose, you lose spontaneity and everything has to be planned and, and organised. And then mothers end up feeling too much on their own because at the last minute, it, you know, you just can't get out of the house for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, one thing that just, that just popped in my mind that might be worth mentioning is um, this, this, this kind of culture of community is still very much alive in a lot of the developing nations. Um, this is their economy. This is how they get by is with, you know, extended family help and support and neighbors and friends. And there is that kind of organic feel still. And I know that with this globalization, there's a lot of people immigrating and moving here to there. But, you know, I I would strongly encourage any women um, to to try and make friends with women from other countries, because this is very much how they still function. And I know that, you know, me being an immigrant myself, um, just how value just how precious it is to have someone say hey i know i know you're new here you know um why don't you come over and just making those international friendships there's so much to be learned from women from other cultures and countries and um just this cultural exchange i think can is really beautiful um that i think really the immigrant populations have so much to contribute um and so i would strongly encourage you know women to break those cultural barriers and, and, you know, allow their, that motherhood language to just shine through and to make those connections. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, uh, Going back to the sort of specifics of other specific outcomes you'd like at a a national level or a UN level, I'll give you the example with um, mothers at home matter in the UK. What we'd uh, like is to have um, changes to the tax system because at the moment in the UK uh, you're taxed individually I think even in the US you have family taxation I think which will take some notice of whether you have children or a a full-time parent at home Um, in the UK we don't have that at all so we're looking specifically for a change to the tax system for fairer family taxation and uh you know, following on from that, so maybe the money to follow the child. So rather than paying nurseries to look after children, you give the parents the money that they either give up a salary and uh, use that money to care for the children themselves, or they put the, they go out to work and pay someone else to look after them. So those are really specific um, outcomes that we would like. Have you got an idea of what you'd like to see at the um, UN level or the national level in the US that would make a real difference to mothers um, over there? Sorry, you froze up a little bit. I think, I think, um, 
I was Sorry, just my internet connection's a little yeah. unstable. Um, if there's a specific example of something, um, you know, a bill or something that you'd like to see come in that would um, enhance the role of mothers, say, and make it easier to be a mother. Yeah, I think um, there are lots with within the United Nations. I think just a recognition um, of of mothers and families just in, in the outcome documents, something that we can really rally around is, you know, just without it being so derogatory um, with, you know, motherhood is a burden. Motherhood is, you know, the source of oppression, kind of a, a feeling to the language happening there. So that, that's what I would like to see is a recognition of the value and the power of motherhood. Um, will that happen? Pro- not likely. Um, and and we don't go there really to change things. We go there really to network with other like-minded groups and women um, and, and to get a firsthand, you know, listen as to what they're talking about so we know how to prepare. Um, at, in the States, one of the biggest concerns I would say, it's pretty general, is parental rights. So I think just the right to um, to influence your child the way that you feel is, you know, obviously, um, with, within, within, um, healthy, you know, frameworks, um, to be able to influence your child through education, through, um, through, uh, you know, healthcare, um, that the parent is that child's first line of protection over the state. I think in other places of the world, perhaps even the UK, and I know, um, in some, some of the Nordic countries, um, the U.S. is a little bit behind you all. You know, you guys are a little bit more progressive in these laws. And so we're trying to not relinquish that um, that parental influence. We don't want that to go. So I think that that's where our fight is. Um, and I think that when we, we relinquish um, those parental rights to the state, then we're kind of grappling for scraps of, of that influence um, and so even if, um, you know, economically there is some challenge, you know, um, that we have, I think that in, from, from my, and this is my personal perspective, so I'm not going to speak in behalf of all big ocean women, but, um, even if I, um, I'm struggling financially for me to accept um, support and help from the government, the government will also, I have to be cognizant of, of the fact that the government will have to have stipulations on that and will maybe at some point limit my um, capacity to do, do the work that I want to do within my home. And so there's kind of a bit of a, of a loss of control there. And so um, I would rather just um, forego some of some of that um, and just make do with what I have and be creative and whatever and use that maternal economy and that extended family resource. Um, and so I, I just, I think a lot of um, um, parents in the United States are, are concerned about that. And so um, we want to be able to, you know, make educational choices for our children. We want to make, you know, um, to, to have that primary influence in their lives um, while we can. So I know that those are some of the issues. And um, when you say the government might have some stipulations over what you do, if you get some financial help, have you got an example? What sort of thing might they get involved with? 
Um, well, I know that our educational school system is really struggling right now. I think that that's probably one of the biggest issues that parents are having. Um, um, are, it's related to just the federal overreach of our local school systems and the tremendous focus on, um, on standardized testing. I mean, kids are having so much anxiety, so much time is wasted at the school on these tests. Um, it's actually data mining our children. And I know that that's a huge issue for parents here in the United States. And um, there's a lot happening out of California with parents that are just really fed up with, you know, the situation of the public school system. And, um, and even in, in the homeschool community, um, I, I've homeschooled my children for many, many years. Um, two of them are currently in the public school system. Um, but, you know, um, for, for a parent to stay home and then to educate your children at home, it would be really nice, for example, to have some of your tax dollars reserved for that. Um, obviously, all of our tax dollars go to the public school. Um, but then there have been these kind of third-party um, providers that try to get you some of that funding. Um, and because they've become a little bit more strict and more strict and more strict because of the government oversight, um, it also limits, you know, the things that we can do at home. And so this is the year that I've said, you know, I don't want that resource anymore. I'd rather just do with what we have and then have the freedom to teach and educate my children as I wish. And it's just taken, you know, practically speaking, it's just taken a huge burden off of my shoulders with having to report back and to have all of this kind of, you know, oversight. And it's allowed us to have more like time to actually have the learning occur. And so, um, you know, so, did they, think, so, so did they let you, you could homeschool, but if you were going to get any financial support, you had to jump through certain hoops and mm -hmm. prove um, that you were doing certain things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's a little bit of the concern um, ultimately related to parental rights is, you know, that we want to have, have that stewardship over our children and without this kind of meddling, you know, institution to kind of regulate things and whatnot. Um, I think that parents ultimately have the best interests of their children at heart and that we go above and beyond. We sacrifice tremendously to give our children the very best upbringing, the very best um, opportunities possible. And so, um, well, just just um, playing devil's advocate slightly. Uh, we've been hearing about all the measles problems in New York. I don't know if you have a, a view of this, but uh, we have some issues in the UK as well from whatever, 15 years ago when they thought there was a link between MNR, MMR and autism. Um, there's some public health issues, I suppose, where the state has to step in to a certain extent and say, well, you have the right not to vaccinate your children, but this is going to be an issue. If, um, yeah, I think I think I can definitely see the vaccination issue, um, you know, related to public health. And um, but it's also a tremendously big parental rights issue. Um, I will say, you know, that um, I feel like having the the opportunity to to vaccinate in a, in a timetable that fits my children is is really valuable because I have had. Um, a really big scare and an allergic reaction with one of my daughters that had seizures. And so I have, you know, firsthand experience of what it's like to have a child not tolerate, you know, the kinds of vaccines. I mean, 
reoccurring seizures and um, many hospital bills later and medic medication and um, all sorts of things to get the seizures under control. That was really scary for our family. And so there, um, I would also, you know, just be, just to have, uh, tell people to have an open mind that, that there are legitimate reasons why parents might be concerned about some of these things. And I think the, the solution is just transparency, um, with, with, um, on all fronts. And I think that, um, it's just a tricky, tricky issue because then you have, you know, parents with children that have in, tiny infants that have died from whooping cough or something like that. And so you just have the scare on both sides. And so I think that there has to be a way to come together, but ultimately that parents can, um, be well-informed and then use that information to make the best decisions possible for their children and families and for other people's children and families. So I think that there has to be a way to do that, but, you know, one thing I do know is that if we relinquish parental rights, then none of us have those rights to make those decisions. And so, um, just to, yeah, it's a tricky subject. So. <laughs> um, just to talk about a bit about you, then you have um, a collection of children. I understand. How many children do you have? Yes, I have seven. Seven. Mm -hmm. uh, what ages are they? From well, no, not all individually, but from top to bottom. Uh, Twenty to two. Uh -huh. And a selection of boys and girls? Yes, we have, we have three boys and four girls. Oh, that's very neat. Well done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> did you alternate or did you have a few in a row? Yeah, I have um, two boys and then three girls and then um, a boy and a girl. So, Girly. And how, um, how have you managed with a large family? What's your, what's your approach to, to the children? Well, I have an incredible husband um, who's very hands-on and he, he's a, a university professor, which gives him a bit of a flexible schedule. Um, and really our family is very much, um, everyone collaborates. You know, I, I really strongly believe in the power of, of family capital, that it's, it's a wealth. Um, and I have children that care for one another and help. And I have kids that, you know, um, are constantly pitching into our home environment and economy and um, we help each other, you know, and I think it's a beautiful thing to see siblings care for one another and to take responsibility and to um, really honor the home and, and do what they can to, to help us thrive. So everyone takes a part. Right. So does everyone help out with all the different chores? Cause you know, just washing and feeding and everything must just take forever. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, does everything together. And so, um, you know, there was a time when I would kind of outline different chores and things, you do this, you do that. And we would kind of do it that way. But now for the most part that people are, you know, our youngest is two. And then the one next to her is turning eight. Um, so there's quite a gap between the first and the last, um, but we, we know what needs to be done. They see a need. I, I always tell them that that's the evolution of, you know, of help is not to be told what to do, but that you can see the need and then you can go ahead and do it. And so, um, yeah, we just have a good, I think, system at home. And I think a lot of that comes from being able to homeschool them for such a, a long period of their life is that we get into a good system and a flow. 
And how do you manage, if you're homeschooling and you've got quite a lot of children, how do you find time yourself to do the, um, you know, to do Big Ocean Women and so on? You've said other people help at times, but, you know, on a day-to-day basis, how do you, how do you plan your days? Well, I think to tell you the truth, um, homeschooling helps tremendously because um, my children are self-starters. Um, I ha- they help each other with their homework. They know what they have to do. We do, you know, three core um, subjects a day and then with a fun subject that I really participate in. But they have their math curriculum that they do every day on their own. They do their reading and their writing on their own. And then we'll fluctuate from history or science or social studies or something. And then that's what, that's the kind of lesson that we have all together. And so they're very much self-directed and, um, and so I'm able to say, okay, now I'm doing my homeschool. And so big ocean is my homeschool. <laughs> and I try to plan meetings early in the morning or late at night. Um, and then I can take phone calls, um, you know, on Bluetooth in the car sometimes. And, um, I try, you know, as, as mothers, we're just really good about fitting little things in and, you know, sending emails while I'm doing laundry. Um, you just become good at trying to fit as many little things in in a day. And and so slowly but surely we move, you know. I, I always think it's like um, margins in a field, you know, when they were um, sowing plants or whatever crops, they always used to have to leave a margin around the outside for cleaning or for, or now for wildlife. And I think of it as margins in the day, trying to fit something in. <laughs> or yeah. Shoehorning is my other way of looking at life, that you shoehorn it in. You just sort of fit that in <laughs> where you didn't think there was a gap. You discover that That's right. And you've actually been able to send a message or something in that gap that you didn't realize existed. And I, I actually think that that's so, so incredible. I feel like it's a superpower to do that um, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, really logically speaking, we shouldn't be doing the kinds of things that we're doing, yet we are. And yet things are moving, you know, forward in this beautiful way. And, you know, children are still thriving. Communities are still thriving. And we're still able to organize and do this beautiful work together. And it's, it's magnificent. And I think it's a testament to how women work. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Oh, well, Carolina, thank you so much for your time. It's now about six o'clock your time in the morning. So time to be getting on with your day. Um, it's been really good talking to you. And I look forward to hearing more and more about um, Big Ocean Women and the impact that you're having in the UN and the US and, and around the world. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yes, yeah, such a pleasure, Claire. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're we'll welcome. stay in touch. Indeed. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Carolina Allen from Big Ocean Women speaking up for the value of mothers and supporting maternal feminism at the United Nations and encouraging people across the United States and across the world to recognise the contribution that mothers make to the world and to their society. Uh, One reason that we really need to support mothers and promote the importance of mothers is because uh, the rights of mothers to look after their children is being eroded. Uh, There has just been a JP Morgan historic 
settlement in a paternity case whereby a father who wasn't the primary caregiver uh, demanded the right to have the full paternity leave to have well basically maternity leave but uh, the primary giver caregiver level of paternity leave to look after his newborn even though his wife uh, who would be the primary caregiver was a school teacher and was on her holidays so she would be at home as well now the reason I'm concerned about um, the uh, gender neutral approach to paternity and maternity leave that JP Morgan have decided to adopt is because it almost certainly will erode the rights of mothers to look after their children themselves in those very, very precious and vital first few weeks after the baby is born. And in fact, the first few months after the baby is born. Um, if there's a completely gender neutral approach to paternity and maternity leave, mothers will have to argue for the opportunity to look after their children because their manager could um, suggest that actually they're more needed at work and their husband or partner should take the time off. We really need to enshrine the, the rights of mothers to have time with their babies in these first few months after birth. Um, and it's not just because it's a, a nice thing to do. It's very, very important for mothers that mothers do uh, need that time for their bodies to recover. Um, and they do need the time to bond with their babies and for the babies to bond with them. It's not just about what mothers or maybe fathers want. It's what babies need because babies, uh, particularly in the first nine months after birth, really need their mothers biologically. The uh, need to, said, been said that the, the need that babies feel to be with their mothers is a, as basic as the need for food. That um, in those first nine months after birth, some people count it the fourth fourth trimester it's almost as though the babies have not been born yet because they're born at a very immature um, stage compared to other animals because otherwise the babies would be too big to be born so they're born relying on the fact that they're going to have their mother with them for at least the next nine months to help all sorts of really important processes kick off in their brains and um, uh, to support this, because it's not enough just to say instinctively that mothers need to be with their babies and babies need to be with their mothers, there's more and more research talking about the value of mothers being with their babies. Uh, one of the things is that babies rely on their mothers for um, uh, their touch, smell and sound. The, the touch, smell and sound of the mother is vital to the baby to help the brain develop correctly. And this is logical, really, because the baby has been inside the mother for all of um, his or her existence for the previous nine months. All they've known is their mother's voice, uh, the smell of their mothers and the feel of their mothers as they walk around. They're suddenly born into a, a remote and cold world. And uh, if they are removed from their mothers too early... This could be extremely stressful for babies because uh, for one reason, early separation from the mother causes um, a lot of stress. And the earlier the, they experience the stress, the worse their social difficulties are going to be later or possibly going to be later. So not only does uh, separating from the mother cause a, a real stress reaction in the baby, but also being with the mother regulates any stress that the baby feels just from being hungry or cold or 
tired. So on the one hand, being with the mother helps the baby to relax. Uh, being away from the mother is extremely stressful for the baby. So it's like a double negative. Babies need their mothers from a biological point of view. And I haven't even mentioned breastfeeding, which, of course, is absolutely uh, vital for babies. And there are mothers who can't breastfeed. There are babies who grow up and they're absolutely fine. But if you without having breastfed, but if you can breastfeed them, uh, then that is the gold standard, because we know that breast milk gives babies everything they need. And not only is the food nutritious, but being held by their mothers and spending that time together is very important for babies when they look into their mother's eyes, the brain neurons fire off all sorts of information to each other. So um, it helps brain develop being that close to the mother and also it, it gives them the correct nutrition so anyway there's lots of information about why um, mothers are uniquely essential for babies in those first nine months after birth um, a lot of mothers have to go back to work in less than nine months but it doesn't mean that they they should <laughs> it doesn't mean that that's good for the baby um, and if uh, paternity leave is brought in uh, on a par with maternity leave and it's seen simply as a question of taste, you know, does the father prefer to be with the baby or the mother, then that uh, causes a lot of problems for the baby early on because they don't get what they absolutely need to start with. Now, fathers are vital for uh, babies and children. They need to be around. They need to be involved. They need to mother, uh, love the mother. But they uh, cannot replace the mother to the same extent for those first few months after birth. And uh, it's really important that the mother can be with the baby, that the baby can be with the mother. So um, my next podcast uh, is for Father's Day, and I will be looking at the unique importance of fathers, what fathers bring to their children's lives that mothers don't bring to their children's lives. And uh, having a mother and a father is an extremely good start for a baby, if that's possible, in that family setup. So it's not that fathers aren't important, it's just for the first few months after birth, Babies will thrive more if they're with a caring, loving mother. And obviously there's some exceptions to that. But if at all possible, babies should be with their mothers to start with. So that's uh, my view on paternity leave. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm Claire Pay. I have a presence on Instagram and uh, Facebook as Podcast Mothers. And I'm on Twitter. It's at Podcast Mothers. Sorry, on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mothers Matter Podcast and Twitter is at Podcast Mothers. And you can email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com. I have a lot of the research on mothers and fathers written down and I'm happy to email it to anyone who wants it. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mothers Matter. Thank you to James Ede from Be Heard, who has done the audio production. And thank you to Mothers at Home Matter for all their support. If you have any positive comments, anything nice to say, please write to mothersmatter at outlook.com. If you feel it's really necessary, please send any constructive feedback to the same address, mothersmatter at outlook.com. And please do subscribe. I really, really would love it if you would subscribe. I'm hoping to do a number of very interesting interviews and to give a voice to mothers everywhere. 
My name is Claire Pay, and you've been listening to the Mothers Matter podcast. Thank you.